Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Dr. Peter James Hudson of UCLA to discuss his book, Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. Focusing on the 1890s through the early 1930s, Dr. Hudson shows how North American bankers treated the Caribbean as a kind of laboratory to test out lending and financial practices. Unrestrained by regulation and at times acting as an arm of U.S. foreign policy, they wielded a powerful influence in the region. Dr. Hudson, welcome to the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you went to school. First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast to discuss bankers and empire. Um, I'm currently an associate professor in the Departments of History and African American Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, Before that, I had short stints at uh, the History Department at Vanderbilt University and African American Studies at SUNY Buffalo. Um, I completed my PhD in American Studies in 2007 at New York University. Um, And uh, before that, I I was raised in Vancouver, um, went to Simon Fraser University there, and uh, spent a little bit of time flitting around um, writing and editing before I returned to to graduate school. And Bankers and Empire really emerges um, out of the kind of uh, kind of confluence of people and both people and intellectual interests that were circulating um, at New York University uh, in the early two thousands. So, what was your dissertation about? Um, the dissertation was was uh, a history of banking, though very much different, very different than um, the the resulting book. What what the the dissertation had a more of a literary bent. I was really interested in kind of um, representations of capital, um, representations of of race, and the kind of relationship between um, political economy and narratives of finance um, within within literature. Um, uh, U.S. literature about the Caribbean. There is, uh, to some degree, an arch- archival component, but the dissertation was really um, kind of pulled in two, dire- two directions. One, trying to um, grapple with this 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 history of banking in the Caribbean, um, as well as a kind of uh, question of literary representations of of uh, the Caribbean within financial discourses in the U.S. in the early 20th century. So the resulting book is really, I think, you know, there's probably one tenth of the book. Of, of the of the dissertation is in the book, and um, the book is really a result of um, uh, subsequent years of, of archival work since I finished the PhD. Hmm. And what was the archival process like for for writing the book? Um, the short answer to that is that it was hell. Um, when I <laughs> when, when I you know I I I think the experience of a lot of young historians, um, and this isn't. A, a critique of any kind of advising I received because I was I think I was really well received but but historians are told you know you're a young historian or, or a young scholar and you said well just go into the archive and find something and and I I um, as an undergrad uh, I, I hadn't studied history um, I was fairly new to the, the discipline um, and so the, even the ideas of archives were a little bit of a mystery to me um, and when I first started talking to to librarians about the, um, uh, you know, where does one find the archive of, of, of banking, of Caribbean banking, or of U.S. banking in the Caribbean? People didn't really know what, where, where to go. They hadn't really heard too much of a pro, uh, of this kind of project. So I, I kind of slowly realized that obviously the the bankers themselves had these vast corporate archives, um, and naively I wrote to a number of them. And I said, "Look, I'm a." a a graduate student or just finished my PhD. Um, and I'm 
really interested in researching the kind of venal and corrupt history of Wall Street in the Caribbean. And of course, that sent a red flag to the archivist. So they kind of immediately shut the door, <laughs> the door on me. And this, this, um, this kind of happened with the, um, the city bank, as well as with some of the Canadian banks that I talk about, the Royal Bank of Canada, the Bank of Montreal, the Bank of Nova Scotia. Um, and so after that experience, I realized I had to kind of try a different strategy. And, um, you know, I realized that uh, the, the, the National Archives um, and the, the records of the State Department were incredible sources um, for banking history, the, the kind of... Uh, sets of correspondence between State Department officials and bankers on, on the Caribbean became a really, really valuable resource. Um, I ended up using a lot of the kind of publications, the internal publications produced by um, by the banks themselves that gave me information on locations and personnel and policy. And I found these in places like the New York Public Library, which was a real, really incredible resource for me. Um, and then I started doing research um, trying to figure out the names of individual bankers who were in the Caribbean. And I tried to track down any of their descendants to see if, if, um, if they might have personal papers. And so this was kind of um, research as a shot in the dark, effectively. Um, and I, I found one banker um, in the Citibank Journal, a journal called Number 8, where, which, where the, I found copies of it in the New York Public Library as well as in the Yale University Library. And there was a banker that I came across um, named, named Joseph Durrell. And Durrell seemed to me um, to be a quite important figure um, in the history of the bank of Citibank in in the Caribbean, he, I, I could tell that he, he had he was from somewhere in the Midwest. He had ended up in Cuba in the early 20th century, and then kind of moved through the ranks of the Citibank until he was the head of their international operations. And I was able to to track down through a bunch of Google searches um, his granddaughter. And I, I wrote her blindly one day, and I was like, look, my name's Peter Hudson. I'm a, a, at this point, I was a professor at Vanderbilt, and I'm doing this research on banking. And I think that you may be the granddaughter of this figure named Joseph Durrell. This is what I know about him. And I'm just curious to know if he has any, um, any personal papers, memoirs, journals, letters, anything um, that he might have preserved from, the, from his time with the bank. And she, and. and Durrell's uh, granddaughter, Connie, Connie Sheehy, uh, wrote back to me almost immediately. And she's like, you know, um, I am his granddaughter and he has papers that are a historian's dream. And if you like, you can come and visit me um, or visit my brother and, and check them out. So I, I, I went to visit her. She was in the Northeast and uh, went to her brother's home and he had a study with a big oak desk and on the oak desk were something like six or seven um, six inch thick leather bound volumes mm-hmm. that represented two different series. One was all his kind of um, his family history that was basically a biography of his family and his own autobiography from the end of the 19th century until the 1950s. And the other set of documents was all his correspondence since he became a banker at the age of 17 um, through to the, his, his time with the, the, uh, as international, as a vice president of 
the international division of the Citibank. And so this was an absolute goldmine. Um, it filled in um, uh, uh, a lot of the gaps in the research that, of material that I uh, pulled from the State Department archives, as well as um, papers at Columbia University, um, the Vanderbilt and Stillman papers, which were two very important figures in the history of Citibank. And so not only did it give me um, a, a whole series of, of names, it gave me access to the kind of um, internal discussions around bank policy. And it also gave me a really kind of palpable sense of, of the personality of these bankers. They were no longer just kind of these, these flattened evil individuals, you know, who were just involved in, in U.S. imperialism uh, as a kind of caricature, but they were very nuanced, complex beings who, who made decisions based on um, their own circumstances, their own time, uh, what they thought was, was right and wrong. Occasionally, you would see egregiously racist, race, racist statements from them, um, but it, you'd also find occasional uh, real sympathy for Caribbean peoples and a real belief that, that their policies even if they're based in, in paternalism, um, were for Caribbean development. So it, it allowed this, I, I, what I hope I was able to, um, uh, to incorporate into this book is on one level um, a, a critique of the broad policies of bankers in, in the Caribbean, but also a sense of, of emotional nuance about how those policies uh, were enacted. I would say it also has another benefit for the book, which is that it's fundamentally driven by personalities. I mean, it's it contextualizes the, these larger phenomena, but it's not. It doesn't ever seem to me when I was reading it, and I don't deal with financial history like this is just a history of sovereign debt and how Absolutely. it was manipulated in the Caribbean. There are actual human beings on the page in every chapter. But let's absolutely let's stop teasing our audience. Let, let's let's dive into the meat of this book: Bankers and Empire: How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. What would you say it's about? Well, Bankers and Empire uh, reconstructs the history of the expansion of Wall Street banking houses and financial institutions. Excuse, excuse me, including the precursors to Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase into the Caribbean region, including Haiti, Cuba, Panama, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico, during a period stretching from the end of the 19th century until the onset of the Great Depression. Um, this period represented an initial exploratory era of the internationalization of U.S. banking, and the Caribbean region was Wall Street's laboratory for foreign expansion. As such, the history I recount was marked by experimentation in the organizational and managerial apparatus of foreign banking, challenges to the legal orders governing the regulation of international trade and finance, and the development and training of a first cohort of international managers and bank officers. In addition, um, in Bankers and the Empire, I try to demonstrate that this history was as much one of race and culture as it was of economics and money. The putatively financial concerns of Wall Street were embedded in and understood through racist discourses and ideas of racial difference. Bankers and Empire argues that the history of U.S. imperialism, Wall Street's internationalization, the development of finance capitalism was braided through the history of racial capitalism. And finally, while the early 20th century history of Wall Street's internationalization rode a euphoric wave of U.S. nationalism and expansion, in reality, it was a period marked by its repeated failures, corruption, military interventions and occupations, financial and economic crises, and Caribbean resistance to imperialism put a break on Wall Street's ambitions. 
Um, <clears throat> the, the, the book consists of seven chapters, uh, plus an introduction and a conclusion. And, and I can kind of go through um, what those seven chapters are. Um, the introduction is titled Dark Finance, and it provides a real overview of the major themes, analytical issues, and historical problems discussed within the larger book. Here I illustrate how uh, domestic, economic, and financial crisis accelerated Wall Street's internationalization, how crisis sparks debates concerning the reform and modernization of regulations governing U.S. foreign banking. Indeed, um, I try to show that regulation is a critical concern for Wall Street, as banking is really based on the legal organization of the accumulation and distribution of capital. The problem of foreign banking represented in part the problem of the extension of regulation across national and regional boundaries and over the uneven, disordered, and plural legal geographies of international markets. The goal for Wall Street was to create the financial instruments and the legal organizations that could extend over this complex geography while navigating both domestic restrictions and regional sovereignty. More often than not, this navigation occurred by evading such restrictions, ignoring such sovereignty, and operating in the seams between jurisdictions and in the shadowed, unregulated spaces of global finance. Now, while Wall Street's corporate lawyers were critical in developing the legal entity for such negotiations, so too were what I call rogue bankers, and these are the, the people that we just that you just mentioned. These are the lower level clerks, managers, and accountants who are really the foot, foot soldiers of US finance capital in the Caribbean. These rogue bankers sutured together the tattered legal geographies of international banking for the purpose of, purposes of capital accumulation. They also highlighted the ways in which racism, more specifically white supremacy, was operationalized through the institutional mechanisms of finance capitalism and imperialism. So let's start with one of those rogue bankers. Let's look at Cuba, which is where you begin the book in many ways. Right. Well, in, in Cuba, uh, the, it, Cuba at the, the end of the 19th century, um, in Santiago de Cuba in the end of the 19th century, there arrived a figure named Samuel Mil- Miller Jarvis. He was um, a, a Midwestern banker um, who had created um, with his partner, Roland Ray Conklin, the Jarvis uh, Conklin Mortgage Trust Company, which was basically one of the most important institutions for kind of lending capital from the East and from England to kind of irrigate um, uh, the the Middle West and and the West. And so Jarvis, uh, Samuel Miller Jarvis is really a figure, um, an important figure in kind of financial relations um, of, of settler colonialism at the end of the 19th century. Um, by the, um, the crash of 93, he kind of turns from the West um, and starts to look for other, um, uh, other places uh, to make money, effectively. He ends up in New York, um, and then soon thereafter ends up, up in Cuba, uh, soon, after the Spanish, soon after the conclusion of the Spanish-American War, and he opens up the first uh, uh, U.S. bank in Cuba, um, which is a branch, uh, the, the, a branch of the North American Trust Company. The North American Trust Company um, works closely with McKinley's government. Um, in some cases, some people said that it became a way for McKinley's brother, Abner McKinley, to, to bilk the Cuban people of money. 
Um, but it becomes this very important in- institution in terms of both the the role of, uh, of the in terms of um, uh, both the financing of the U.S. military presence in Cuba and later in terms of the development of central banking in in uh, uh, post-independence Cuba, where it it morphs into an institution called the Banco Nacional de Cuba and effectively becomes the the Cuban government's central bank. Um, Jarvis is um, a, 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 a quite brilliant entrepreneur. He's also seen as as utterly corrupt. Um, many of the people who worked with him in the Midwest follow him to Cuba, um, and they they end up in Cuba with repu- reputations for having collapsed their their companies um, under the shadow of the crisis of 1893, but as a way to kind of bilk investors of profits, which when, which they then plow into Cuba, um, and then do the, then do the same thing first in Cuba um, and and later in uh, in the Dominican Republic. One of the most important things for me um, about Jarvis, um, he's really a, a kind of understudied figure in the, in the history of U.S. finance. But many of the people who work for him end up working for the Citibank, for the Chase, for, for Brown Brothers, for other institutions. And so there's a way in which um, the kind of methods that, um, that, that he's espousing as a banker um, with the North American Trust Company um, and, and his other institutions uh, then kind of migrate to the chase, to the Citibank, to Brown Brothers, and people like Joseph H. Durrell, who I, I, I mentioned, and, and other bankers, um, all kind of got to start with um, with Jarvis's uh, Caribbean operations. And so his, the, the kind of story of of um, Samuel Miller Jarvis is is really the, the the story of the first chapter of the book. And then in the second chapter, you move us to Panama. What's going on in Panama? Yeah, so the, the second chapter um, l- looks at at these uh, a series of institutions that exist before the signing of the Federal Reserve at the end of 1913, and what I'm arguing here is that that period before 1913 is this really interesting kind of um, free space for banking, and so there's there's an attempt by um, by all kinds of entrepreneurs and and um, and crooks in some cases to create what are called these kind of Pan-American or international banking institutions, banks that can go into Mexico, go into Cuba, go into to South America, and in some cases go into to Asia um, that can both work for the War Department um, and 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 work for the kind of um, emerging uh, U.S. commercial and corporate interests um, throughout the world. And so I tell the story of of a number of these institutions, most of whom. Um, fail within a couple years of, of operation, many of whom um, were only set up to 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 bilk their their customers. Um, but then I focus on what becomes the kind of granddaddy of international banking, what's often considered the first U.S. international bank. And this is the International Banking Corporation, an uh, institution that's founded in 1902 by a lawyer and industrialist by the name of Thomas H. Hubbard. Hubbard um, Hubbard has ties to railroads, to gun interests, to all kinds of different corporate interests in the U.S. And he works to um, uh, to make the International Banking Corporation, in the first instance, the kind of government uh, repository for the, the U.S. presence in Panama, 
in the Philippines and China. In the case of Panama, he wants to to use it as an intermediary to um, um, help finance the building of the, of the the Panama Canal. In China, he's hoping to to use the bank as an intermediary for the payment of the Chinese indemnity. And in the Philippines, he's hoping to use it to to in the first instance to um, to pay U.S. soldiers, but in the second instance to um, develop uh, uh, industrial concerns in the in the Philippines. Um, it's are you there? I'm still here. Okay. Um, and and again, this is another kind of pioneering pioneering uh, institution in the history of American foreign foreign banking. Um, many many later bankers. Um, including people with the Citibank really covet the international banking institution because it's got this very unique um, charter that, that is basically a, a double charter where you have on one level the International Banking Corporation, which is a, a Connecticut char- chartered institution being chartered in Connecticut. It's legally able to establish foreign brand branches and, and other activities. But there's also a parallel bank that's chartered in New York called the, the American Bank um, which is used um, um, for kind of d- domestic commercial concerns in New York, and and the, the Citibank in particular really looks to the International Banking Corporation um, as, as a model to um, to think about how they might go ahead with their own foreign expansion because they're they're hampered in their expansion by um, the National Bank Act, um, and they eventually. Um, uh, uh, after the signing of the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve System, um, Federal Reserve Act, purchase the International Banking Corporation and use it to expand their own um, uh, international presence after 1914. So then, I mean, Chapter Three, I think, really beautifully moves into role of the Citibank, but it also shifts location on us again, and this time into Haiti. What's going on in Haiti? Well, and I think I think um, chapter three and chapter four need to be seen as as kind of parallel chapters. Both of them deal with the Citibank. Um, the 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 chapter four looks at the Citibank in Haiti. Chapter um, uh, excuse me, chapter three looks at the Citibank in Haiti. Chapter four looks at the, the Citibank first in in Cuba, um, but then through its entire international presence. Um, and what's important about the the, the Citibank in in Haiti is. In some ways, the, their history there is part of the kind of darkest and most violent um, um, episode in in the bank's history. Um, very early on, I think in about 19, 1910, the Citibank thinks you know they're they're embarking on a period of expansion. They're looking for ways to um, control the finances of of other countries by by taking over central banks and becoming involved in. Um, uh, uh, commercial banking, and they see so they, they become involved in in Haiti um, with the end goal of taking over um, the the French controlled Haitian state bank. Um, it's you know to kind of compress the story along the way, Haiti is going through its own internal turmoil, and in order to um, protect the, the the bank's interests in that country, the the, the managers of the Citibank in Haiti call on um, the State Department for for military intervention. Um, And military intervention um, eventually occurs in 1915, leading to 
um, a 19 year occupation that lasts until 1934. Um, and so what I, I'm trying to argue here is not only does, does Haiti represent this kind of important and neglected moment in the history of cities banks internationalization, but the actual strategy of, of military occupation of the use of U.S. Marines to protect the bank's interests are um, a kind of integral part of the policy and the thinking of the of of of, of Wall Street and of the Citibank in particular um, as as they move into into the Caribbean um, and Central America. So here's a question I have: um, You can see the you know these gray areas where suddenly American bankers are going out and in effect almost acting as agents of the United States. What happens? As the U.S. government starts to notice what they're doing, are they working together? Is state generally pretty comfortable with the way that Citibank, for example, goes out and operates? What's what's sort of the U.S. government perspective on this? It's it's a very kind of um, complex relations, um, and it's a relationship that's marked by both um, complicity um, and and contradiction. I mean, certainly the U.S. government encouraged and supported the internationalization of U.S. banking. Um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, U.S. politicians saw um, an American international banking presence as, as necessary to the development and what they called the manliness of, of the country. And they called for regulatory reform that would get rid of kind of the outmoded banking legislation of, of the National Bank Act and would support the foreign expansion of Wall Street. Um, and then you know, as as I as we both suggested, after 1898, the war and state departments required fiscal agencies to support the infrastructure of U.S. colonialism in Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, um, and financial institutions were an important conduit of colonial policy and financial and commercial uh, diplomacy. Meanwhile, provisions in the Federal Reserve Act explicitly encouraged the development of a foreign branch network for U.S. banks, something that really didn't exist before 1914, and encouraged the creation of the kind of domestic cartels that would have been illegal in the, in, in the U.S. but were permitted for overseas um, to, to finance foreign trade. Um, but as, as, you know, in some cases, such as in Haiti and Nicaragua, bankers um, encouraged the landing of U.S. troops in order to protect their, their interests. Now, at the same time, um, although foreign policy was often dictated from lower Manhattan um, and the federal government alongside the U.S. military came to protect, protect U.S. banking and investment abroad, Wall Street often clashed with Washington. Um, in Cuba in the late 1920s, for instance, the State Department was becoming increasingly frustrated with the Chase Bank's handling of loans to Cuban dictator uh, Gerardo Machado. And they saw the bank's activities as a deliberate evasion um, of the Platt Amendment, which was, uh, was, was supposed to restrict the Cuban government's abilities to take on further debt. And so the, the State Department active, actually saw what the Chase was doing um, as something that would push the, the, the Cuban government towards further instability. Um, and by the 1930s, um, you know, kind of spurred by the revelations on banking practices revealed by Fernand Pecor and the Senate Committee on Banking and Currency, but or by the Pecor Commission, um, President Roosevelt enacted legislation that could curtail the activities in, of bankers, both domestically and international, internationally. So, you know, in sum, I think it's it's not like you can say simply that um, the U.S. government supported bankers at all times. I mean, certainly there's. Um, egregious instances of complicity and graft by um, individual 
members of, of different U.S. cabinets. Um, there's a, a kind of direct line between Washington and Wall Street in terms of, of banking policy and the shaping of banking policy. And some people were even critical of, of the Federal Reserve Act because it was seen as something that was just drawn up by J.P. Morgan, uh, Frank Vanderlip of the Citibank, uh, James Stillman of the Citibank, simply to serve the interests of, of, of the bankers. Um, um, and they felt that the um, that uh, various legislators were in the bankers' po- pockets. But there was moments when, when bankers realized, or excuse me, when the U.S. government realized that the activities of bankers was actually um, a kind of threat to the stability of the region and threat to the United States of themselves, and so um, acted to, to curtail the activities of, of Wall Street in the Caribbean. Fascinating. Well, let's not jump ahead too far. I had one other question I wanted to consider. You know, I was struck reading this by the extent to which um, – Canadian banks actually popped up here. Royal Bank of Canada repeatedly, the Bank of Montreal, Bank of Nova Scotia. So this is sort of a two-part question. How how are American banks working alongside their Canadian counterparts? And does American banking behavior in this period, how does it compare to the other imperial powers that are operating around the globe? Great questions. You know, and, and it's funny for me, I think the the thing, you know, I'm 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 Canadian. I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up um with you know, under the shadows of these these Canadian banks, um, but and uh, my my father's from Jamaica, and if you're if you're from anywhere in the the Anglophone Caribbean, um, you grew up with the Bank of Nova Scotia, with the the Royal Bank of Canada, the Bank of Montreal, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. But I was um, surprised by the degree with which they started to emerge. Um, in in my research, I didn't realize the extent to which um, Canadian bankers were um, um, later became the real active competitors of of Wall Street in in the region. But initially, um, Canadian bankers, you know, they had a long standing. Uh, linked to the Caribbean from from the middle of the 19th century through the kind of um, maritime exchange the exchanges with, of maritime Canada with the with the uh, with the British Caribbean with the kind of exchanges of, of rum and and cod um, in the 19th century, but by the end of the 19th century, and uh, um, especially after the, the Spanish American Cuban War, um, the World Bank in particular realized that there was an opportunity in Cuba. They saw um, U.S. and Canadian investment um, capital flowing into the country. Um, They realized that trade with Cuba was increasing, but they also realized that um, the uh, U.S. domestic banking legislation, again, this is the National Bank Act here, um, explicitly prohibited the establishment um, um, of branch banks by national banking associations like um, the the Citibank. What this meant was that they could go into Cuba um, and and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and to some degree Haiti and act and act as as surrogates for American banking interests. So they ended up um, really working um, with. They would establish a branches in, in, in Cuba, but also agencies in, in New York City and Chicago, and in some case, Chicago or New York capitalists would invest heavily in the Canadian banks, um, and then they would kind of work together to finance the expansion of railroads, um, um, sugar, um, etc. throughout the region. So Canadian banks acted as, as, as surrogates, um, and then 
um, and also became, and again in, in Cuba uh, especially, became real competitors with the American banks in terms of um, uh, branch bank um, uh, branch banking. The major difference between the activities of uh, of the U.S. and Canadian banks was in the provision of sovereign debt. We don't see the Royal Bank of Canada or the Bank of Nova Scotia lending money to Caribbean governments. This really becomes the, this is the province of American bankers. And when it comes to um, kind of questions of speculation, of corruption, of some of the egregious practices that, that I demonstrate, that I describe in the book, um, certainly the, the Canadian banks are, um, as active um, in terms of the overexpansion of branch banking um, after after the, the First World War. Um, they're, in some cases, just as active as the U.S. banks in kind of over-speculation on sugar. But the main difference is when it comes to sovereign debt and the provision of sovereign debt of the loans to especially the Cuban government, they're not involved. And this becomes like the territory of the American bankers. And, and this is where we see, especially with the chase, the kind of um, uh, uh, egregious and unhinged and speculative forms of, of financing that, that lead to, to so many problems within the Cuban um, economy. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's a question, you know, in some ways they're, they're both competing with the, the U.S. bankers, um, they're, uh, they're doing their own thing, um, at, or, or they're, at, they're surrogates to the U.S. bankers, um, and in some fields they're just as, as, as corrupt and uh, overly exuberant, and in other places they're a little bit more, more conservative. And then going to the, the second part of, of the question in terms of, of, of uh, British and French Bankers. I think what's important to realize here is, um, in the first instance, the, the the French bankers, especially in Haiti, um, had a horrible rep- reputation. They were seen as, um, first of all, they were seen as profiting from um, the reparations debt that Haiti had to take on uh, in the 19th century um, in exchange for uh, diplomatic recognition by France of Haiti, um, and then through the 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 19th and early 20th century until the, the U.S. bankers really became involved in Haiti, the, the French banks were, were seen as just bilking the country of money. And in some cases, Haitian governments would throw French bankers in, in jail you know, for their, their, their corrupt practices. Um, the British bankers, from what I could see, were, were somewhat more conservative. But in both cases, what the, the issue became um, during the First World War uh, European capital was was basically retreated from the region. It was so tied up um, in European affairs that this this uh, created an opportunity um, for the the U.S. and the Canadian bankers to get involved in the Caribbean. Um, and I don't think the European bankers um, ever really um, uh, returned in any significant way to the Caribbean. After that, and I think the the final thing that's that's important to realize here, um, and I wish uh, more could be written about this, is one also has to take account of the role um, and the activities of of indigenous banking 
um, the, the attempts by uh, Cubans, Haitians, um, Dominicans to kind of create their own banking institutions. Um, and, and you see there's a very interesting moment um, uh, immediately after the First World War, especially in Cuba, um, where there's this kind of you know, growth of the Cuban banking industry. Um, it's totally unchecked, it's unregulated, it's speculative, it collapses, allowing foreign bankers to come in. Um, but there's a kind of um, interesting and lost history of, of an indigenous banking sector um, and potentially, you know, what, what the, the, the possibilities of what an indigenous banking sector might mean in the long term for questions of, of Caribbean economic sovereignty. Um, I don't necessarily explore that in the book, but I think it's something that um, is, is worth looking into. No, that, that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And like work does need to be done on that for any prospective PhD candidates who might be listening in on this. We should take heed of that advice. So let's, let's move to the fifth chapter where you talk about Mercantile Bank of the Americas. What's the MBA? What does it do? Um, well, first instance, I have to say that the fifth chapter is actually one of my favorite chapters in the book, so I'm very happy to, to talk about it. Um, and I think that the Mercantile Bank of the Americas is one of these institutions that I kind of discovered a few references in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal in the 1920s um, and found um, in, in different um different archives, references to different parts of its history. In short, the Mercantile Bank of the Americas emerged as the single largest American international bank um, after World War I. Um, it was founded about, I think, in around 1919. Um, it was led by a consortium of, of bankers, um, at the forefront of which were uh, J.W. Seligman, the, the investment bankers, Brown Brothers and Company, um, and J.P. Morgan and Company, and they they got together to organize this this vehicle that could effect, effectively um, take over central banks and commercial banks throughout the um, throughout the Caribbean and, and Latin America, and their their growth and and they were first of all they the they were enabled by the the Federal Reserve Act and the kind of new banking uh, legislation that created the the legal machinery to f facilitate the forward expansion of American banking. And they quickly went out um, into the field and created this incredible network of, of branch banks that were subsidiaries of the parent bank in New York, as well as semi-autonomous local and, and central banks. And so they basically created this, this near monopoly um, on, on banking in, in the Americas. Um, but as, as rapid as their rise was, uh, so too was, was their, their fall. Um, they were, um, they were blighted by overexpansion, um, by managerial incompetence, um, by personal corruption, um, and by market instability. Um, and by the 1920s, it proved that this kind of network that they had created was was extremely uh, frail, and that there was difficulties of communication between New York and the subsidiaries throughout the region, um, and and it it collapsed in, in, in this. In this huge explosion um and it, it you know this is one of the kind of narratives of a failure um, um and the limits of u.s imperialism that become central to the book 
Um, and it, it becomes a kind of cautionary tale for bankers uh, during this period about that expansion. But again, another opportunity for other bankers, especially the Citibank, the Chase, um, and the Royal Bank of Canada to kind of take over the, the kind of skeletal forms of of the branch banks, of the mercantile bank, of the Americas uh, throughout the region. And just as a, a kind of footnote to the, that story, um, it's in the, this chapter that I, I, I really talk about Nicaragua. And we talk, we've heard about um, um, Nicaragua as being the kind of Republic of Brown Brothers. Um, um, and, and this actually meant that um, the, that it was the Republic of the, the Mercantile Bank of the Americas because it was Brown Brothers through the Mercantile Bank of the Americas that controlled the Nicaraguan Central Bank, printed their currency, um, had the, the, the currency had the signature of, of, uh, of Brown Brothers officials authorizing it. Um, and it was through the bank that, that uh, Brown Brothers um, encouraged uh, U.S. military intervention um, in, into the region. Um, and I think that, that the story of of the kind of rise of of, um, of a kind of revolutionary nas- nationalism in Nicaragua under uh, Augusta Sandino um, generally neglects to, to talk about this the role of of the Mercantile Bank of the Americas and their kind of corporate expansion um, in fomenting the conditions for the kind of peasant revolts that we see by the end of the nineteen twenties uh, and early nineteen thirties. Hmm. And then transition to chapter six. This is where Durrell gets to show up, and he he's a large character. What what's he doing in this period? Absolutely. So this in chapter six talks about the kind of um, uh, attempts of the Citibank to uh, develop a new strategy and a new policy um, after the kind of uh, banking collapse of nineteen twenty twenty one, and this is a banking collapse that through which the the Mercantile Bank of the Americas gets shuttered, but it also for the Citibank, they realize that their brand, their own branch expansion um, has has been too quick. They've set up too many branches. They've staffed them with too many incompetent people. People. Um, they've overinvested in sugar. They've uh, they've uh, 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 made put money on on dubious uh, sugar contracts, and this hits them hard. It almost you know the the kind of collapse of the price of sugar um, and the kind of bottoming up of these these sugar loans almost brings down the Citibank um, in in 1921. And so out of this, the Citibank directors realize that they have to develop a, a new strategy. Um, uh, by this time, James Stillman, who was a kind of patriarch within the bank and who guided the bank from the end of the 19th century when it was a merchant bank or, or kind of you know merchant slash commercial bank um, into into this this powerful international entity. Uh, he's gone. He, he's died. Frank Vanderlip, who's a kind of um, technocratic genius who oversees the expansion um, of 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 the bank in the in the in the Caribbean, who's this kind of liberal um, and progressive thinker um, when it comes to questions of international and, and banking uh, banking expansion questions, he's pushed out, and the 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 bank turns the the directors of the bank turn to this kind of young. A uh, good-looking, dashing, hyper-masculine guy by the name of Charles Mitchell, and Mitchell was basically a salesman who had been recruited by Vanderlip previously. But they see Mitchell as a kind of figure who can right the ship of the Citibank um, and take it in new directions. 
Vanderl- or excuse me, Mitchell gets rid of most of the personnel um, that Vanderlips hired. Um, he he gets rid of many of the unit units, individual units that Vanderlips uh, had created, um, and he consolidates power with himself and a small group of of vice presidents. Um, and so, where Vanderlip had kind of created a a, a huge managerial network. Um, uh, Mitchell effectively returns to one-party rule and gets rid of a lot of these people and then takes the bank on a whole new series of strategies. One of the, the, the people that he hires is uh, Joseph H. Durrell, who I mentioned earlier in terms of his family and his, his archives. He becomes increasingly important um, within the bank, and he's the one who really is on the ground, first of all, in Cuba, um, hiring and firing the staff that that had been hired by previous managers, reducing the branch network, and trying to figure out new strategies of, of, of accumulation within the bank. His success and his loyalty to Mitchell sees him within a decade move from uh, manager of Cuban branches to um, head of the the the, uh, the Caribbean district with, with the Dominican Dominican Republic, Panama, Haiti, etc., to the head of, of, of all of South America, and then finally to basically the head of its its global banking operations. Um, unfortunately for for Mitchell, or excuse me, for Durrell, who's a very ambitious, very smart man, um, and in some ways a very old school banker who who believes in you know, high reserve requirements, who doesn't believe in speculation. Um, you know, he, he ends up working for a, a gentleman, Charles Mitchell, who's exactly the opposite. Mitchell is all about speculation. It's all about loaning as much as the, the bank's capitalist uh, as, as possible for, um, for dubious ventures. And it's all about expansion. So even when he try, he's loyal to Mitchell, tries to rein in Mitchell at times, um, but, uh, you know, his, his efforts basically fail and this leads to um uh you know i'm jumping ahead a little bit but this leads to the kind of near collapse of the bank again in the in the 1930s and um, eventually the breakup of of the bank in the 1930s Hmm. so then the seventh chapter titled odious debt is great to me because it it seems to be the logical culmination of these ad best sort of ill form and shady banking practices it's also a lot about chase what's going on absolutely so it's the 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 seventh chapter is is basically both the history of the history of the chase in general but a history of the chase in the caribbean and specifically it's an institution that's founded in in the 1870s um and goes through a kind of rapid period of domestic expansion um up until uh the around 1913, 1914. At this time, um, they start to look overseas. They form a subsidiary called the American Foreign Banking Corporation um, that suffers the same fate of the Mercantile Bank of the Americas. It goes through a, a period of expansion, um, but it's the expansion is, is marked by all kinds of corruption um, and um, bad business practices, um, and it collapses. In the wake of the collapse of the American uh, Foreign Banking Corporation, the Chase turns to uh, what's called its security affiliate, a kind of parallel institution um, that allows um, allows the bank to do certain things that uh, that allows them to do certain things that are not actually permitted under national banking legislation. So the Chase is a commercial bank. The securities affiliate, which is called the Chase Securities Corporation, allows them to be to to uh, get involved in uh, investment banking. 
the Sache Security Corporation also facilitates their expansion into the Caribbean. And it and and the the directors of the Chase realize that, um, and especially its its president um, uh, Albert Wiggins realized that their way to compete with the Citibank, um, uh, in particular, is to fight with them over sovereign debt issue. And so they're trying to com- they're trying to loan as much money as possible to as many Caribbean um, and Latin American countries that. that as possible. And they do it without any kind of regard for the ability of these countries to pay them off. Um, and in Cuba, this becomes the most egregious, where they, they aggressively sought to fund the government of Gerardo Machado um, and offer him all kinds of money that, that he's using for his own uh, vanity projects, um, even as, as the Cuban people are starving. Um, but by the, the end of the 1920s, the, the chase starts to get into, into trouble. The price of sugar, which is a staple of the Cuban economy, um, basically flatlines. It never reaches the, the heights that it was uh, during the First World War. Um, the, the, the government of Machado, which was democratically elected, morphs into a, a dictatorship as he, he refuses to have uh, further elections. And the Cuban people increasingly are feeling like the the Chase Bank is propping him up and that the the loans that the Chase Bank makes to Cuba um, are illegal or odious, that they're a form of odious debt, that they're odious because they were contracted um, by an illegal and illegitimate government. And so there's a kind of movement among Cuban politicians, especially once um, uh, Machado goes into exile uh, in the early 1930s, where the Cuban people are like, we are, we refuse to um, to make payments. We refuse to to make the amortization payments on on this debt because they're illegal. And so there's this kind of extended uh, legal battle um, between the Cuban government um, and the, and the Chase Bank are around these these debts. In the end, the Cuban government wins. The or excuse me, the Chase Bank wins, and the Cuban government is 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 forced to pay the debt. Um, but it creates this kind of longstanding um, animosity um, and kind of anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-Wall Street sentiment um, within the country towards towards the the Chase, but also towards the Citibank, the Royal Bank of Canada. Um, And, you know, one could could argue that it's it's the kind of um, uh, economic crisis that was created by the lending practices of the Chase in the 1920s and um, uh, that that eventually led to... um, uh, that he eventually led to the, the Cuban Revolution in 1959 because the kind of uh, crisis, the economic crisis of the, the 1920s and the, the bank crisis of the 1920s had kind of repercussions throughout the rest of the 20th century. Hmm. And what's the domestic effect in the United States? <clears throat> it's, it's, well, so the domestic effect is, is interesting. And I mean, just as, as an anecdote here, um, the, one of the archives that I, I found, uh, one of the, the kind of, uh, the archives that I found in, in the National Archives were the archives of the Pecora Commission papers. And um, Fernand Pecora was this, this young lawyer who was kind of given um, uh, carte blanche and subpoena power to investigate the, the practices of 
of the of, of Wall Street in in the face of the, the financial crisis of, of uh, in the wake of the financial crisis of 1929. And one thing you find in in those papers is a, a, an entire file of people who are writing to um, his team of lawyers, um, and in some cases saying, "Look." The ch- uh, a Chase salesman or a Citibank salesman came to my house, promised me these returns on on some Cuban sugar company or a Dominican sugar company. I gave my life savings. Now I'm destitute. There's hundreds of letters from from all over the country, alongside letters from from people in Cuba complaining about about the practices of the um, of 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 Wall Street. And so we see that that at this moment that the the, the Caribbean people. And American citizens are deeply tied together through the practices of Wall Street. They're both suffering from from these practices. And out of that, you see um, a groundswell, as I suggested, of of opposition um, uh, to Wall Street in the Caribbean itself. Um, And this is at the level of everyone from, you know, Cuban peasants to Cuban workers to um, to the Cuban government, but you also see this kind of groundswell of, of, of opposition and frustration um, to the international practices of, of, uh, of Wall Street um, amongst U.S. citizens, people in the, in the Midwest, people who may never have traveled to Cuba, but who saw the promises of, of um, the investment in Cuban sugar or um, Argentine wheat or whatever it is, um, as as their their hope for security, and then suddenly these 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 two populations are are linked together through this this crisis, um, and it it emboldens I think the um, investigators into the bankers and and emboldens the um, uh, Roosevelt in terms of. Uh, tr- you know, trying to deal with these bankers and the bankers themselves are, you know, they're, they're, the revelations about their activities are coming out and they're chastened. They've gone from the kind of highs of, of, of the 1920s into the doldrums of the 1930s and that they realize that even though they think they've, they've done everything right and in, in, through all their practices, they realize that, look, we have to do something to change our appearance. We have to, you know, um, support the withdrawal of Marines from Haiti. We have to support the, the development of, of domestic banking reform as well as, as banking reform in Cuba. Um, so I think there's, there's this, this interesting story that, that perhaps still needs to be told. And again, you know, for some, some uh, prospective graduate student out there about the kind of domestic responses of, of, of American citizens um, to to the international implications of of this financial crisis. Fascinating. I have to ask. Um, I, I'm thinking of, of books like uh, Mary Renda's book about Haiti, where she talks about the significance of the occupation of Haiti for African Americans in the 1920s. Right. And do you get any sense that African Americans in the United States are looking at these banking practices specifically, critiquing them? Absolutely, I, I think um, uh, in in the first instance, when, with with say the, the U.S. occupation of Haiti, we in the early years of the occupation, I think many African Americans were no different than white Americans or State Department officials in terms of their perceptions of Haiti. They saw it as as backward, corrupt, a place of of of, of savagery. Not all African Americans, but there's a good part of the population that actually supported. U.S. intervention as a as a way to um, 
um, reform and stabilize this this black republic. But you then begin to see people like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, Hubert Harrison, a little bit later, George Padmore, um, and then probably most importantly, James Weldon Johnson of the National Association of, of Colored People, uh, who, who go to Haiti, or at least Weldon, uh, Weldon Johnson goes to Haiti and spends about five months there investigating um, the conditions in Haiti and, and investigating the activities of the Marines. And it's really through the work of, um, uh, of publicity that, um, that the, the opinion of finance capitalism and Wall Street in the Caribbean changes. Walden, excuse me, James Weldon Johnson begins um, an article in The Nation in 1922 by saying that the National City Bank of New York is effectively responsible for the U.S. occupation of Haiti, and its vice president, Roger Farnham, is the U.S. government's point person in, in Haiti, and goes from there to describe describe all kinds of marine atrocities and the ways in which Wall Street is imposing foreign loans on, on a kind of... Um, on, on Haiti itself. So, you know, there's an interesting kind of shift that you see by the 1920s where I think many African-Americans were um, kind of living in a certain kind of ignorance about what was going on um, in, in the Caribbean and partly because of the lack of coverage of what was going on there to this moment where um, alongside the rest of the popu- U.S. population, they began to see um, what was really happening there. And then the, I think um, uh, African-Americans become some of the biggest advocates uh, for the return of sovereignty, um, uh, of, of sovereignty in, in Haiti and else, uh, other places to to Caribbean people, um, and the withdrawal of Marines and the withdrawal of U.S. finance capital, and I would also say that um, while there's, I would say, you know, characterize someone like James Weldon Johnson as a kind of steady liberal, even though he wrote some some very radical articles on the occupation, the the, the people who also did a lot of publicity there. Um, where the uh, was the Communist Party, um, especially through their their so-called Negro wings, and this is where a figure like George Padmore um, mm. and other people become important because he writes articles, you know, titled. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing here things like, you know, U.S. imperialism enslaves Haiti, U.S. imperialism um, enslaves Liberia. Um, and these articles circulate not just in in communist publications, um, but also in, in, you know, the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, um, the Amsterdam News, you know. And so the the average African-American is is reading these very critical um, articles and these very radical articles um, about conditions that in, in Haiti and begin to see that the, the experience of Haitians is not unlike the experience of African-Americans, where Haitians are being lynched by U.S. Marines, African-Americans are being lynched in the United States. And so it's easy then to, to see a kind of parallel and a kind of um, line of affiliation that, um, and solidarity, which then leads to further protests within the, the country on behalf of Caribbean people by African-Americans. Fascinating. I've taken up a lot of your time today, so I wanted to ask just one more question. What are you thinking of working on right now? Great question. Uh, And a question I would love to spend another hour talking about, but I've actually, you know, it's for me, this has been an amazing project to work on because I feel like I've, I've learned, I've entered so many territories that I really knew nothing about before I started. Um, but there was also something very alienating um, about telling, you know, spending 10 years telling the story of a handful of, of, of dead white guys. <laughs> um, and, and I think 
one of the questions that that um, I was always getting as I was trying to write and research the book is like, well, what about the question of of resistance? How did people um, resist the, these bankers? And 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 I thought it was important for me to tell the story the way I did and to 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 really get into the minds and the histories of these these bankers. But it, it's a question that kind of lingered with me. And so I'm I'm kind of I've been I think I've enjoyed the kind of um, biographical element of the narrative and i want uh, uh i want to shift i want to take that that kind of uh, biographical mode of writing um and apply it to one of the figures i just mentioned uh george patmore mm. and patmore uh was born uh, at the beginning of the 20th century um came to the united states in the 1920s went first to fisk university then to howard university um and then at some point in the 1920s um, about 1927, um, joined the Communist Party and become, became one of its most important kind of Negro functionaries. Um, he traveled to Africa. He traveled to Europe. He spent time in Moscow um, trying to, to train and recruit uh, black revolutionaries. Um, until the early 1930s, he had a serious break with, with Moscow um, over their, their kind of what he saw as a retreat from an, um, an anti-imperialist policy and, and support for the sovereignty of, of African, Asian, and, and Caribbean nations. Um, and so at that point, he embarks on a kind of period of, of independent Pan-Africanism or what he calls uh, Pan-African socialism, where he's willing to work with with people like uh, Marcus Garvey, who he initially, as a communist, was against, um, as well as people like uh, C.L.R. James, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Joma Kenyatta of of, Ken, of Kenya, and so through the, the middle of the 20th century, Padmore is living um, in in London, uh, working as as a journalist. Um, writing on on the colonies and sending these his dispatches out to the African American press and and the, the African press um, and all the time he's he's working to advocate for uh, the decolonization of uh, um, of Africa specifically kind of shifts from you know his Caribbean roots to to focus on Africa because he sees that um, Africa if Africa becomes independent that will become the kind of um, a way for Caribbean nations to to follow. Um, his kind of dreams of independence are, are first realized in Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana and uh, its independence, um, but soon thereafter he, he dies of a kind of mysterious um, uh, pancreas ailment. Um, and so for me, Padmore is a figure who um, uh, he's much dismissed within the historiography. A lot of people see him as a kind of wacky Pan-Africanist, um, but he's also somebody who, who has, a, to me, a, a quite incredible story. Um, he's publishing the whole time, he's writing the whole time, and he knows every activist throughout the world, and he sticks by this kind of um, this this uh, vision of, of uh, independent Pan-Africanism. And so I'm really interested um, in trying to recover um, Padmore as a figure within within African history, um, but also within African diaspora history, and I think also within the history of capitalism, someone who has a kind of consistent line of critique of, of capitalism. So I'm, um, I think the next ten years will be spent trying to 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 uh, to write Padmore's biography. Wonderful, that'll be a valuable addition. I think. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, and thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>